Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about hair rings. The jewelry, not the fish. <laughs> We are thrilled to welcome today's guest. Dr. Sally Holloway is a historian of gender, emotions, and visual and material culture in Britain over the long 18th and 19th centuries. Sally's monograph, The Game of Love in Georgian England, Courtship, Emotions, and Material Culture, was published with the Oxford University Press series, Emotions in History in 2019, and will be out in paperback in June. Sally is also researching the role of food in the process of courtship and working on her new book project on the history of heartbreak. The book examines the embodied experience of losing and recovering from love in 18th and 19th century Britain, including disappointed love, unrequited love, and the broken heart. So Sally is clearly the ideal person to talk to about all things love and courtship. Welcome, Sally! Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here uh, talking to you both about all things hair and hair, hair related. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start our scene today back in Devon in Sense and Sensibility. Edward has come to visit Barton Cottage and is spending time with the family. Marianne and Eleanor have noticed that Edward seems a little unhappy despite Marianne's best efforts to engage Edward in discussions of the picturesque. She doesn't understand why that's not perking him right up. <laughs> So after one of these exchanges, there is a lull in the conversation, and Marianne makes an observation. I never saw you wear a ring before, Edward, she cried. Is that Fanny's hair? I remember her promising to give you some, but I should have thought her hair had been darker. Marianne spoke inconsiderately what she really felt. But when she saw how much she had pained Edward, her own vexation at her want of thought could not be surpassed by his. He colored very deeply. And, giving a momentary glance at Eleanor, replied, Yes, it is my sister's hair. The setting always casts a different shade on it, you know. Eleanor had met his eye, and looked conscious likewise. That the hair was her own, she instantaneously felt as well satisfied as Marianne. The only difference in their conclusions was that what Marianne considered as a free gift from her sister, Eleanor was conscious must have been procured by some theft or contrivance unknown to herself. The intrigue. Who's the hair belong to? How did he get it? <laughs> That's what we want to know. So Sally, let's start our conversation today with just describing this hair ring that Edward is wearing. Can you tell us what this would have looked like and what exactly Eleanor and Marianne are seeing? And I'm curious how one would even go about having such an object made during this time. Or was this like a arts and crafts at home type of project? So we know that Edward's ring has got a, a plait of hair in the centre. So probably it would have been set behind a pane of glass to protect it from damage. So previously they would have been set behind rock crystals. But by the 18th century, they would have been set behind a piece of glass, sort of like a window that you could gaze through to look upon the hair. The owner would be able to engage in all these sorts of rituals uh, of you know gazing at it and conjuring fond memories of a beloved and loving feelings about the person that the hair belonged to. But obviously, because it was behind glass, probably they would have been unable to touch it. And so some people occasionally had plaited hair rings made without the glass. And so that meant that the hair was directly set into the band itself. 
And it gave it greater tactility as a love token, because as well as gazing upon it, it enabled the owner to touch the hair. So you're literally bringing, you know, the skin of your finger into direct contact with the hair of your beloved. So it's very much a sensory, a sensory object about, you know, touching and and gazing and so on. And so in terms of how it was produced, so typically items like this would have been made by a, a professional jeweler or goldsmith. So you could take a person's hair to the jeweler and they had enormous catalogues. So you'd look through the catalogue, you know, of 100, 150 different designs and pick the one that you wanted. So although Edward's ring is quite simple, so it would have been much more affordable, you know, you could have really elaborate designs that were studded with seed pearls and you could have your hair arranged into all of these amazing shapes like wreaths of flowers. You could have your hair arranged like the Prince of Wales's feathers. You could have it made into a sort of true lover's knot. There were all these different, you know, you could even you could even have it chopped up, mixed with paint and painted into a scene. So, you know, really the possibilities are, are endless. But Edward's ring is actually quite simple. So it's it's a simple plaid. And I mean, there was lots and lots of cultural anxiety about what these jewellers were going to do with your hair once they had it. So, you know, if you took it to an unscrupulous dealer they might knowingly swap your hair with someone else's if they if they didn't really care about what they were producing if they lost it they might you know augment it with another person's hair or they might secretly swap it or accidentally swap it and that created a lot of anxiety because it's sort of you know as part of the living body of a lover you're almost sort of defiling that body if you're mixing it with hair from somebody else And because the entire purpose of these tokens is, you know, you're gazing at them and you're renewing your promises of love, you know, you you don't want to be making those promises to somebody else's Mm. hair because it's almost like then that you're you're making the promise to the wrong person. So they're, they're probably made by professionals until about the 1840s or 50s when you did have manuals of instruction starting to appear. But there's enormous cultural anxiety about what happened once the hair was out of your possession. It's like you're cheating on somebody with somebody else's hair. Without even knowing it. Yeah. What's the point of making a pledge of, you know, it's so embarrassing as well. You know, you're making a pledge of love (laughs) to some some random person's hair. Well, and I'm also envisioning these these jewelers that you sign up to be a jeweler and yet you're spending half of your day like intricately weaving little strands of other people's hair like that you're becoming. it's It's a wonderful image to me. Yeah. And it was woven, you know, it was woven with pieces of gold thread. It was, you know, woven with pearls and you could also have around the edge of the setting, it could be set with pearls and diamonds and rubies and so on. So, you know, the cost of having something sure. like this made increased exponentially. I think the example we're talking about here was quite a simple one with a plait of hair, probably behind glass, but there were, you know, the possibilities were, were endless. And would people ever have a, a ring like this made with both their hair and their significant other's hair? Sort of deliberately woven together, not accidentally by the jeweler. <laughs> You could weave two pieces together and also some people had separate settings. So there's some examples of bracelets that have a portrait and then you'll have lots of different sort of windows and put different hair between each Uh, window, like of your children or descendants or so on. It's a hair charm bracelet. It is. Yes. (laughs) Well, in your book, Sally, in The Game of Love in Georgian England, you point out that hair is a specifically poignant token of love used in a range of these settings. And you've talked about some of those settings. But what is it about locks of hair specifically that really say love in Georgian culture? Well, I mean, hair was so important as a love token because it was literally 
part of the human body. So, so many gifts of courtship are symbolically related to the body. So gloves were a popular courtship gift and a popular wedding present as well. And so they were symbolic of a lady's hand and her hand in marriage. Garter was symbolic, it was quite an erotically charged token that was symbolic of a lady's leg. But hair is different because it's not symbolically important. It's literally part of a person's body. And so that meant that it would never fade or decay. And so that's why it's got all of these associations with everlasting love. You know, the hair is everlasting, just like your connection, just like your romantic bond. And so that wasn't something that was new to the 18th century. So hair had been associated with immortal love ever since at least the second half of the 17th century. So we can see, for example, in John Donne's poem, The Relic, the man wears a bracelet of bright hair around his wrist bone in his grave uh, as a way to unite his soul with that of his beloved. And so even though their bodies had decayed to the bone, the hair was still young and bright as if no time had passed. So the hair, like their love, was eternal. And so just like in Dunn's poem, a hair exchanged by lovers was treated as a kind of sacred relic and it was revered as a treasure by their owners hair was touched and kissed just like relics of saints so locks of hair as an actual literal part of the body very much fall into that sort of sacred relic category of of, of, uh, objects and people would touch them and kiss them and use them to inspire their love letters and romantic poetry so you're sort of using these things as a as a springboard to produce and intensify feelings of love i knew this but you've really put kind of an exclamation point on it for me, Sally, the fact that the hair is the thing that of the human body is perhaps the most enduring, you know, on, on our exterior bodies. And so the fact that this is something that can take on that symbolism, I, th- I think, like you said, it makes sense once you say it, but then it's like, okay, the enduring nature is, it's not just the physical, I love this person, but it's the enduring nature that really kind of puts the period on this is love. Well, and also it's associated with youth and with, you know, especially for women and women's beauty and you know, it's a bit like now we still, a lot of people still cut, you know, their baby's first lock of hair. Right. It's associated with sort of youth and, and as people get older, the hair, you know, the hair stays young. If it's been cut, it's, it's not something that ages. It's, it's timeless in a way. It, it, it really sort of fossilizes that moment in time when the hair was cut. The hair ring is a great way to say, baby, you might be a withered old crone now, but look at this hair. <laughs> you once were hot and young. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that what you just mentioned about, especially for women, as a symbol of beauty, because it is making me think about the fact that, you know, hair for women of this time is something that they kept up unless they were around, you know, immediate family or spouse. I would imagine that, yeah, giving that token of hair, there, there is a, that extra element of kind of intimacy there. Yeah, I mean, if your hair is down and, you know, like I think Mar- Marianne's hair is tumbling, tumbling down her back at the, the moment where it's cut. It's, you know, your hair is down, you're exposed in a way uh, where the moment when the hair is taken from your body. A certain kind of vulnerability as well as intimacy, I think. Yeah. Mm. So, Sally, the passage at the top of the episode that we read makes a reference to Eleanor's self-consciousness of looking at the hair and thinking, oh, that's definitely mine. But then she wonders how Edward got the hair. And later we learn that it's actually Lucy Steele's hair that she set in the ring for Edward. Why do you think Austen gives us this little mini mystery plot (laughs) around the hair ring in the novel? I mean, she's sort of playing on the ambiguity surrounding her as an object because, you know, unless it was directly attributed with a portrait next to it or it was arranged into a person's initials, then really 
you know, if you were looking at it as a third party, it was completely impossible, really, for you to know whose hair you were looking at. So Edward says the setting always casts a different shade on it, you know. So there's that sort of ambiguity of what colour is it? Who does that belong to? Do I recognise that hair? Like, I don't know. And, you know, unless it's directly attributed as a third party, it's very difficult to tell. And indeed, you know, many of the examples that survive now in museums, we have no idea who they belong to, unless there's any sort of accompanying documentation. And so the same can be said of romantic jewellery like eye miniatures. Right. Uh, so you've got, you've got hair tokens, you've got eye miniatures that only depict a person's eye and eyebrow. And again, unless you were told directly, you couldn't really know for sure whose eye you were looking at as an observer. And then even more rare than that is I've seen a few of uh, people's lips. Oh, like the, the portrait, min- portrait miniatures of the lips? Yeah. So just the lips is sort of emerging like from a cloud, you know, not even a chin <laughs> underneath it, just, just the lips in a, in a tiny disembodied in a tiny lips. Little locket. I love it. Disembodied <laughs> lips. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's the hair, it's the eyes, it's the lips, and they're, they're completely isolated from the rest of a lover's body. And it's all part of this process of objectifying and commodifying a lover so that they could be consumed uh, sort of by the person who almost owned them in a, in a sense. And so it's a very deliberate choice that Austin has made to have the hair so conspicuously displayed. So everyone can say, oh, you know, whose hair is that? Is that my hair? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a del- it's a deliberate plot choice that she's made because actually a lot of the couples that I've studied engaging in courtship, they had stuff set, they had hair set into all these different objects, but very often they had it set in at the back. So, I mean, it didn't need to be visible anyway. So that's a choice that she's made because if nobody could see it, it wouldn't really have been uh, uh, had quite the same role in the story. It also fits with with Lucy's character, though, right? The fact that she's like yeah. ostentatiously trying to like lay claim to Edward. And so the fact that he's coming from Plymouth to the Dashwoods. And so it's like, this might be a new ring. And so she's like, put it on. I'm laying my claim. <laughs> that's very Lucy Steele. Also demonstrating that Edward is not great at subterfuge because he doesn't think to just like take it off and put it in his pocket. It's sort of playing on the liminal nature of their relationship as yes. well. Like, is it public? Is it private? Is it a done thing? Is it a done deal? Is it not? So yeah. the, the sort of ambiguity surrounding the hair is very, is very appropriate to, to their relationship. Well, I think what's also interesting about this particular scene too is again that, that Eleanor, you know, like we were talking before, Eleanor is thinking, how did he get this hair, Right. Marianne is assuming that Eleanor has just given this to Edward and that, that he's put it in a ring. But Eleanor's sitting there thinking, like, when could he have possibly gotten this hair? You have to imagine, you know, because Edward is not like the most active of Austin's heroes, to put it mildly. It, you know, I can't see him taking that kind of action. But the fact that Eleanor's like trying to do that mental gymnastics of like, when was my hair down? Where did he find this? Or is he like going through my hairbrush? And getting things like, it's like there's all sorts of like weird possibilities when she's trying to think how Edward got her hair, but she's convinced it's hers. Well, it shows, shows as well sort of the vulnerability, yes. your vulnerability during courtship and the vulnerability of giving hair or not, and what it said about your character and your reputation and your virtue, whether you'd given it away or not. Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. So Margaret actually tells Eleanor at one point, Margaret has overseen this kind of interaction between Willoughby and Marianne. And this is her telling Eleanor about it. She says, Willoughby seemed to be begging something of her, meaning Marianne. And presently he took up her scissors and cut off a long lock of her hair, for it was all tumbled down her back. And he kissed it and folded it up in a piece of white paper. 
So that's a very vivid scene right here. And so Margaret has assumed that a betrothal is pretty much settled between Marianne and Willoughby. And once Willoughby's perfidy is exposed, the lock of hair comes up again in the letters, like he's, he's being asked to return the, the hair. What is it about this exchange that really drives home what's happening between Marianne and Willoughby? So, I mean, the, the fact that he had cut a lock of her hair, it really, it showed that their engagement was a done deal. Mm. And so Margaret and Marianne were entirely justified in presuming that they would wed. And actually, it's a very erotically charged moment when he cuts her hair. So as he cuts it directly from her body, her hair is all tumbled down her back, we're told. And he kisses it, he puts it in his pocketbook, and then inside his own clothing. So it's like, you know, part of Marianne's body has been seized by him, and then sort of put inside him in a way, like inside his clothes, you know, they are their bodies are physically united. So he's literally taking possession and ownership of part of Marianne's body. And so for readers, what Austin's doing is um, revealing the sexual threat that he poses oh. to her virtue and to her chastity. This is, again, it's like, it's, it's amazing how, how deeply sensual, and I mean that in both the sensory way, but also in the physical kind of way that this, I wouldn't have thought that these locks of hair had that power to kind of denote those things. But I think... The fact that, yeah, so, so, so after Willoughby, again, has kind of shown that he's awful. And so she actually writes him the letter. And she's like, you need to return the lock of my hair. When she's specifically demanding that back, is there something else that we can be reading into that? Obviously, apart from the fact that it's like, it's not yours. You, it does not belong to you anymore. Is there anything else that we can be reading into that kind of crisis for her? Well, I mean, if you wanted to terminate a relationship for good, you had to get your letters back and you had to get your hair back because she's put herself at a significant risk by providing the hair in the first place. And so, yeah, there's a sort of scramble to get it back and, and, and prevent excessive damage as a result of what's happened. Because, yeah, you didn't want it being shared or sent to third parties or really didn't want anyone else knowing that you'd given it away. So, I mean, if you, if you wanted to end a relationship, you got your letters back, you burned them, you got any tokens back, and you burned them as well. It's a sort of ritual of purification to, to burn and physically erase any material legacy that, that's still surviving from a relationship. It's very final. Uh, so yeah, she's got to get got to get any letters back, got to get the hair back, you've got to destroy it. Because you know, as I said, hair is an everlasting token, you know, and it's it's not going to disappear in any other way. Yeah, you don't want to chance him showing it to his friends at the club or having it made into a ring anyway and just wearing it around town and everyone's kind of like, oh, that kind of looks like the hair of that girl that you jilted. Exactly. And actually, um, there are some examples of people collecting hair from lovers and keeping them sort of to display, you know, to put in your, your private cabinet to look upon your romantic or sexual partners. You, yeah, you've, you've sort of got part of the body of each of your lovers that you could sort of tuck away. So you want to make sure you get it back yeah. so that you don't, you know, unwittingly become part of somebody else's collection. This is making me think also of, you know, when we, we kind of look at the, the exchanges again with Willoughby and Marianne, when she requests them back, he then writes like, oh, here's the hair that you bestowed upon me. And she's like, hello, that is revisionist. <laughs> What would it perhaps have meant if she's the one who's like, no, Willoughby, have my hair? Because he's the one who took it from her. So that's, again, that, that exchange that kind of implies that there's been a kind of a, a give and take. But, she's, but he's revising that history. Is there something kind of sketchy about that potentially? I mean, it's definitely significant who instigates these things. And, you know, it's definitely a sign of power in terms of who 
has ownership over these tokens, who offers them in the first place. You're sort of claiming your ownership of a relationship and of the language of love and the sort of power relationship that's going on if you're offering tokens. I mean, so typically it was men who sent all of these gifts to women. Men sent romantic gifts with much greater regularity than women did. Women did occasionally send things, but not with the same frequency. And often the things they did send were handmade. So they, for example, they might make a hair work handkerchief and they would sew their hair into a handkerchief and give it to men. But it, it says something if they offer their hair as a token. It's quite forward. Yeah, that's what I was going to wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I've read a lot of letters where men are continually requesting women's hair. But yeah, it says something particular to, to offer it, to bestow it. Right. As if you're quite forward, you're quite keen to give it away yourself. So so that's why he's revising that history is to make this a, it, it's you who misconstrued things kind of. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it's again, interesting too, because he also, when Marianne is sick, he comes to try and talk with Eleanor and kind of defend himself. And I put defend in air quotes there, because <laughs> let's just be clear. But he actually says that he was forced by his fiance, his wife, to give the lock of hair back, that he wanted to keep it. Of course, we know that constancy is not anything that Willoughby understands anything about. But the fact that he purposely wanted to keep it and hide it while he was still married to another, again, is just another layer of deceit in his character that I can now see and understand in a different way. And it definitely makes sense that his wife would be like, that shall not remain in our house. Thank you very much. (laughs) But it's also funny. Okay. And then we'll just bring it back to Lucy and that original hair ring that we have with, with Edward. So after Lucy runs away with Edward's brother, she writes him a letter that says, I've burnt all your letters and will return your picture the first opportunity. So that's kind of tracking with what you were saying earlier, Sally. Please to destroy my scrawls. But the ring with my hair, you are very welcome to keep. What is that? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, it's also, it's almost sort of throwing everything out, saying, well, it means nothing. Oh, okay. You know, it was this symbol of everlasting love. It was nothing to me. Right. Well, I'm also wondering, too, because of what you've said about how people typically did want these tokens back because it was a significant thing. I wonder if it's also a little bit of Lucy's way of being like, I know you're always going to love me. I was the best, you know. I'll let, I'll go ahead and do you solid. I'll let you keep that hair of mine. It's very generous of her. Yeah. Even though I'm married to your brother, go ahead and still have the hots for me. This is totally fine. It's also a bit of a dig at Eleanor. Like, oh, yeah, he's going to want to keep my hair forever. Right? So Yeah, she's all about that cat fight energy. So she's like, yeah, Eleanor, I'm sure you're going to love seeing this on Edward's finger. Like, I'm sure he's going to wear it. It's going to be fine. I win. Like, it's always about I win with Lucy. Imagine if he actually kept it and wore it. Just so many awkward family dinners. I can't even imagine. (laughs) I'm curious how long these tokens remained in fashion for. Like, when when do we see this trend for giving each other hair rings kind of dying out? I mean, what's interesting is that the nature of the hair ring changed. So in the 18th century, the rings that we're seeing definitely looked like hair. So it was plaited hair, you know, you could look at it and think, oh, that's hair. But, you know, through the 19th century, it changes. And, you know, the hair was being woven to all of these. So the, the entire ring or entire bracelet or whatever was entirely made of hair. And it was woven into all these fancy designs so that in many ways, you couldn't actually tell that it was hair anymore. It's sort of crafted and worked up in a way that almost takes it away from the sort of relic-like status that it had in the 17th and 18th centuries and almost makes it more into something else and it you know then in the you know through the 19th century it remained a really important part of mourning rituals 
so hair, hair was still big business, you know, right through the Victorian era. Yeah. And, you know, and talking about body parts, you know, Queen Victoria collected hair from each of her children. And also she had some of their teeth set into jewellery to sort of preserve that, you know, their childhood, preserve something of them physically, almost like a relic. So, you know, body, body part jewellery was still big business. It was still going uh, for the Victorians. (laughs) Well, Sally, is there anything else about hair, hair rings, love tokens of this time that you want to mention before we wrap up? I mean, one thing that I find interesting is the sheer volume of things that hair was woven into. So you had hair rings, but, you know, people wove hair into buttons, they wove it into buckles, they wove it into necklaces, they wove it into watch chains, they wove it into hair pins. So, you know, you could have a full, you know, hair outfit available to you in different <laughs> forms. It was, you know, there were all these, you wouldn't wear it all at once, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I read some accounts of men sort of pestering women for more and more and more hair. Uh, until eventually they say, oh, you know, I, I won't thin your flowing locks by asking for any more hair. Because, you know, they're, they're just they're asking for this continual stream of, uh, of hair to be provided for these different forms of jewellery. Because, it, you know, that was that was your moment. If you were on the brink of marriage, that was your moment to request the hair and get it made into various things. You know, it was it was a fertile time courtship for uh, creating these <laughs> hairdressers. You didn't want to miss your moment to get some hair buttons while you had the chance. <laughs> Sally, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Where can our listeners find you online and learn more about your work and your book that will be coming out in paperback soon? Yes, thank you. So yeah, you can find me. I'm on Twitter, uh, Sally underscore Holloway. My book's out in paperback. Buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) And it's fascinating. I mean, I'll be honest, Sally, I might want you back on to talk about more love tokens and heartbreak with your second project. Like this just all sounds so good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm in. I can talk about love tokens for, uh, uh, yeah, you have to shut me up. We love it. One of my next projects I'm doing is on uh, food as a token of love. So it's interesting how, you know, all the different sort of types of object that could function as love tokens and, and why. Yeah, I just love this. It's so fun. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Dr. Sally Holloway for joining us for today's episode. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be talking about Tattersalls. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye!